The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled The Power of Team-Based Care and Novel Therapies in Alopecia Areata and Atopic Dermatitis, What Advanced Care Providers Need to Know. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash REA860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, I'm Lakshi Aldridge, and I'm a nurse practitioner with the VA Portland Healthcare System in Portland, Oregon. Welcome to this educational activity on the power of team-based care in alopecia areata and atopic dermatitis. Let's get started. The prevalence of atopic dermatitis is estimated to be 15 to 20% in children and 1 to 3% in adults. The disease course of AD is commonly chronic in adults and more relapsing or remitting in children. The burden of symptoms can be profound, adversely impacting quality of life. Depression, anxiety, sleep disturbance, and other atopic dermatitis conditions are frequent comorbidities. Recent evidence has shown that patients with AD are at a higher risk of multiple autoimmune diseases, including alopecia areata. Systemic therapies are commonly used for patients with poorly controlled, moderate to severe AD and impaired quality of life. So an overview of alopecia areata, the lifetime prevalence is about 2%. Males and females are similarly affected. Onset typically occurs in the first 40 years of life. There's a higher odds of alopecia areata in blacks and lower odds in Asians compared with whites. If we look at the psychosocial impact of alopecia areata, 62% made different major life decisions, for example, with relationships or career choices due to their alopecia areata. 85% stated coping with alopecia areata as a daily challenge, considering their mental health, other folks' reactions to them, and 47% reported anxiety or depression. When we come back, I'll be joined by Dr. Lawrence Eichenfield and Dr. Charles Vega, who will lend their expertise to a discussion of diagnosing and assessing severity of disease in AD and AA. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Joining me today are Dr. Lawrence Eichenfield, who is a dermatologist from the University of California, San Diego, and Dr. Charles Vega, who is a primary care physician from UC Irvine. Let's start with AD, which is sometimes referred to as the beginning of the atopic march. Yeah, I can speak to the uh, atopic march because this is something that I think we're pretty well versed in in primary care, uh, particularly in family medicine. We're taking care of folks um, really from uh, you know from childhood when they may uh, develop lesions, some of which you see uh, pictured here, kind of more in the mi- more mild to moderate range of atopic dermatitis. Um, but we can't forget that atopy is also associated uh, with higher risk for wheezed in uh, very young children that eventually can develop into asthma. And fortunately, uh, those uh, diagnoses tend to fade over time 
in uh, many individuals, but of course we see a, a lot of variability in that as well. Uh, food allergy is also something to consider. Again, usually gets better with age, whereas uh, rhinitis uh, tends to um, get a little bit worse uh, among children as they move through school age into high school and can stay elevated for, for many years. So. I think it's nice uh, in primary care because we are able to take care of patients over the course of their childhood and over the course of their lifetimes as uh, they suffer through different stages of, um, of this atopic march. And then it becomes a question of you know, how do we uh, diagnose AD? Larry, do you want to take this subject? Sure, I'll be happy to do that. So the... Um uh, first of all, there's certain, uh, a lot of atopic dermatitis presents in the first few years of life, though we actually have new epidemiologic data that shows that you know, about 7% of adults have uh, atopic dermatitis, and about a third of those appear to be new onset. But still, the majority of atopic dermatitis starts early, and the diagnosis is, is that it looks like eczema in the typical morphology and distribution. So infantile eczema is often facial eczema, uh, predominantly in the extensor surfaces, though usually by even you know ten months to a year of life, you start to get the the antecubital popliteal fossa uh, involvement, um, um, at, you know, the flexural disease which goes on, and then it morphs over uh, in uh, in teens and adults, where you tend to get um, 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 besides the flexural areas which often persist, you can get a lot of hand dermatitis or hand and wrist and, and facial dermatitis and neck dermatitis as well. So the, the, probably the big thing is it has to look like typical eczema in the typical morphology and distribution and not look like the things that it's not. <laughs> and the things that it's not can include you know, psoriasis, scabies, a broad set of other inflammatory conditions, in adults, cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. So you, you, you want to look, you know, if it's not looking like typical uh, eczema in typical distribution, then think twice and consider a differential. Yeah, Larry, I think that that is a potential pitfall for us is that uh, we can uh, become so familiar with eczema and just assume that everything is atopic dermatitis through, that, through the life cycle uh, that we might miss uh, some other important dermatologic diagnoses, as, as you say. So I think it's, uh, it's important to stay vigilant. And when something isn't acting um, like a, a typical form of atopic dermatitis, we should be aware of it and, and just be, keep our differential and our minds open. So uh, eczema has the, um, besides the physical characteristics of normal eczema, it's going to be an itchy condition. <laughs> and, um, and, that, uh, and then it can be um, um, persistent or it can be uh, chronic and relapsing. And our diagnostic criteria are very nice to know and important, but most, most of the time, even in specialty or primary care, you're doing this gestalt of the set of features with the supporting features, which could include early onset, uh, other ATP, um, a family history of ATP as well, the xerosis or dry skin that's part of it. And then there are these associated features that are important to know about, but it's not as though you sit there with a checklist to conclude that someone has atopic dermatitis as compared to other examinous or non-examinous conditions. If you go to the next slide, I think we had some pictures uh, to point out that, that um, we have variations of the presentation of eczema in different skin types. It's something that we need to like, let people know about. So this happens to be lighter skin. You see the typical eczematous features. You can have oozing eczema in the Greek means to boil over. Uh, you can have crusting. You can have papules. And then you can have thickening 
and lichenification. And the picture on the right shows erosion and then lichenification. In skin of color, you can have variations on that. You can get a grayness of appearance from dry skin. You can get a lot of lichenification, that sort of stuck on quality, or lichenoid dermatitis. Uh, even in areas that don't seem that affected, you can have a prominence of the follicles, what's called follicular uh, eczema, um, uh, which is something that's very, uh, very common. And then you can get very profound uh, lichenification and a lot of dispigmentation, both hypopigmentation and hyperpigmentation uh, from the disease, which families often come in thinking is scarred, and sometimes it's scars, but a lot of time it's not scars. And if you get good inflammatory control, it'll normalize over time. Larry, I have a question for you because I think it is really important to consider uh, folks of color when we're thinking about these dermatologic diagnoses. And I, I see individuals who do have that xerosis and maybe some hyperpigmentation, but it's not necessarily, and it is in the distribution, but it's not pyritic. And I strike that as almost more of maybe they just have some xerosis and some dyshydrosis and treat it you know, with moisturizers. Not too dissimilar from, I guess, a mild case of AD, but I don't necessarily go and say it, it is AD without that, um, without some element of discomfort and pruritus. Is, is that about right or, or should no, I be no. thinking a little bit more broadly? No, no, you're right on. Because there are patients who have common ichthyosis, ichthyosis vulgaris, who have very xerotic skin um, and have a tendency to develop atopic dermatitis. But I see patients come in with that who've been treated with topical steroids, but they don't have itch, they don't have inflammation in the skin. That's the wrong approach. They just need to manage the, the dryness and xerosis. So you're, you're, you're right on, Chuck. Thank you. So um, assessing severity, I'll take that as well. So, you know, there's this spectrum of severity of atopic dermatitis, and, and you can look, but you also need to ask questions uh, and assess both how the disease is other than what you're seeing on that particular day as a healthcare provider, and also what the course has been like, because there's some atopic dermatitis that's mild when you see it, but it's been worse before. And there's also differences in terms of whether the disease is persisting. There's very mild atopic dermatitis that can sometimes go away for weeks or months at a time and could just be managed with moisturizers. Well, on the other hand, we have some moderate to severe patients who are very persistent. So these images show just sort of a, a milder uh, uh, set of patients with some, you know, some inflammation, not quite aggressive oozing. It might be more localized. The next slide is more of a gestalt of moderate disease. You're starting to get, you know, uh, uh, on the edge of oozing, uh, more swollen, a red, uh, red skin, and then extent, of course, matters as well. And our severe atopic dermatitis is a severe eczema. You can have a lot of oozing and crusting and um, uh, lichenification, that's thickening that happens as well from a chronicity. And obviously, if you have a lot of thickening, when we do our interventions, it's going to take a lot longer for that to settle down and, and cool out, so to speak, than a patient who has just milder forms of eczema. Dr. Eichenfeld, could I ask, when you see a patient in a given time, they could be in any phase of the spectrum, uh, correct? So how, when, when you see a severe patient, do they tend to be in that state for longer than, say, an, a mild patient? Or where, how, how do you gauge the, the severity when they come in in different phases? Yeah, so, so the, the answer is that, you know, severe patients will tend to be severe with longer periods of time. There tends to be more persistence. But I mean, it, you can ask pretty quickly, say, so how did the, so I always start with, when was your skin last normal? 
They'll occasionally get patients with really severe disease and they go, oh, uh, uh, three weeks ago, and you go, there's no way, because <laughs> the lichenification they're showing, what they call normal isn't normal. You have to say, no, no, normal like someone who doesn't have eczema. Um, um, uh, and then, um, but in a patient who's milder or moderate, they'll tell you, oh, no, this is the way it usually is, or we hadn't had a flare for several months. So you can very quickly get a sense of, of whether they had, have more, uh, had more severe disease. And, then, and over time, we've learned that, you know, in our, in, in clinical practice, we tend not to quantify disease other than saying mild, moderate, severe, or, you know, clear or almost clear. In cl clinical studies, we do these detailed uh, studies where we're assessing the, the extent of the disease, how much body surface area involvement there is, and um, um, as well as the qualities of the eczema. And there are some objective scores that patients may have, patient, you know, patient outcomes that we use as well. Um, and they're generally used for clinical studies. So if we go on and discuss the outcomes for eczema clinical trials, we can talk about easy scores. It's not that it's an easy score. It's the eczema area and severity index, which totals up the qualities of the eczema and how much eczema there is on an area. But it's a great tool as we do clinical studies to show improvements over time. And the POEM is the patient-oriented uh, eczema measure. It's a series of questions that's really assessing how the eczema's been over the past week. And the score adds the scoring atopic dermatitis and the PO score adds the patient scoring atopic dermatitis. They're more objective measures um, that are generally used in studies, not in practice. And same thing with itch tools and the quality of life tools that we use. Though asking about itch is something you should ask for any patient you think might have moderate severe atopic dermatitis. And you can say, how's the itch? How's your worst itch? And immediately I slip right into sleep disturbance, which isn't the same as itch, but it's such an important aspect of atopic dermatitis. I'll just pitch in and say that, yes, it's, it's good to hear that you know, we aren't necessarily expected to be doing easy scores or the poems and, because we have uh, so many uh, different things we have to do competing for time in, in primary care. Um, but I do think the minimum that we should be doing is really looking at the, uh, the symptomatology, how much uh, it's a bother for patients, uh, whether it's having an effect on their quality of life and or their ability to do what the things that they need to do, be it at home or work or school or whatever. Um, and, then, and then actually looking at the rash itself and documenting uh, where it's found, trying to get some idea of the surface area, looking, and that way you have an objective record so you can go back and see if a case is uh, getting better or worsening between uh, the, you know, the, uh, the skin findings themselves, the patient's function, um, and their symptomatology overall. And I think that that, you know, for, for most patients, that gets us to goal in terms of uh, getting the right kind of care on board, um, and also making sure that their, their voice is heard and we're moving forward with their care. Yeah, I think that's totally right on. And I'll say, as we go on to discuss these incredible new therapies that are coming into the field of atopic dermatitis with incredible changes in outcomes, um, those, you know, those determinations of how the patient is doing and how is the disease impacting their life becomes increasingly important because we have a lot more to offer than we have had before. So I was hoping that you would comment, either one of you, on the use of clinical photographs or cell phone pictures that patients may bring in. We're talking about disease severity. And, you know, when they come in to see us, it's a snapshot in time. So do you find that using clinical photography or cell phone pictures is useful for assessing disease severity? Well, I'd say yes and no. Um, it, it definitely is a, is a good start. 
Um, I get a lot of uh, patient messages, you know, asking for a diagnosis, and mostly what I see, I can tell there's skin in the picture, but I also see a ton of light that's kind of blanched out whatever they're trying to show me, and I have to say, can can you try again? And sometimes, and then by the third time, it's just just come into the office, we'll, we'll take a look at this thing. So I think some of the details can be lost, but I think between the pictures that, that patients take um, and the pictures that we might take in clinic uh, can be very useful, uh, particularly when we're talking about uh, you know basic principles of distribution of, of the rash. I think that is is very helpful, and that can kind of start to get me in the in the right framework for differential diagnosis. Uh, but the fine details, I, I still feel like I'd rather you know see the patient and uh, and get to look at the um, look at the skin condition in in different ways. Yeah, and we do both telemedicine and follow up, which can work uh, with uh, uh, examinist dermatitis with atopic dermatitis. But initial diagnosis and stuff, we're always going to want it (laughs) in the office. But when two patients, sometimes they'll say they're looking great now. And then they show you a picture and the picture you see, like, you know, this incredible face of oozing eczema, you know, know, the whole face is like, okay, you get it. They were a lot more severe than what you're seeing that day. And it does help you to come up with, you know, better regimens of care. Thank you so much. That was a great discussion. I want to switch gears now and talk a little bit about alopecia areata. So let's start with looking at the types of alopecia. Right. So, so many of these patients are going to first see their primary care uh, provider. And uh, for, for the most common thing we see is a male pattern alopecia. So it's, it's typical, as you can see pictured in this slide. Um, alopecia areata, because it has that cleared out quality where there's really um, no obvious hair growth looking at a distance, um, it is a bit unique and stands out from some of these other less common causes of alopecia. I do think it's, it's nice to have the picture of uh, discoid lupus here because that's one I think that can be a, a mimic and there are some, uh, some tools to use. Um, Larry, is this in your mind categorize some of the main things that in your differential diagnosis when you see someone with, with patchy and, and fairly uh, total hair loss in a specific area on the scalp? Yeah, yeah, totally agree. You know, alopecia areata is non-scarring. So there's usually no infl- inflammation or maybe a little bit of pinkness, and it's usually those coin-shaped lesions, unlike you know the discoid lupus or more serious scarring alopecia. Yeah, and, and a couple things get to the border of the area. Now this is one where you do have to have the patient you know there with you, um, and and pull some of the hairs. They should easily separate out. And then there's these exclamation point hairs. It's it's kind of the opposite of a normal hair morphology in that they get thinner as they get closer to the scalp, kind of looking as you stand them up on the scalp, kind of like an exclamation point. Uh, you may also be able to see some yellow dots in the follicles on uh, dermoscopy uh, if you have that in your office. Um, and then you always have your friendly dermatologist down the road to help you with the diagnosis. But but the pattern of it, as we can see um, in, in this slide, the, the way uh, the way it is that discrete you know patch, uh, which is one of the most common forms of alopecia areata, that to me is is pretty telling. I don't see as you know where most of the scalp is affected by the same patchy uh, form uh, formation is much more rare. The sophiasis is something that I have seen in clinical practice. I, I bet you have too um, if you take care of a, a decent number of patients with alopecia areata. 
And then these other patterns, including um, on the bottom right of the slide, uh, alopecia uh, totalis, alopecia universalis. Universalis meaning, you know, there's, you know, all the entire body, all hair follicles are affected, um, are pretty rare as well. There's another clue as well. Don't just uh, pay attention to the scalp. You know, make sure that you're looking at the face, including eyebrows and beard areas. And then a significant number of patients with alopecia areata also have uh, nail involvement. So you're putting these things together uh, with the, the typical findings on the scalp. You know, oftentimes it's going to be a clinical diagnosis. In terms of uh, severity, this one there is a, um, some more common tools. And, and this is important to really gauge um, severity in thinking about the percent of scalp and other skin that is affected because that's going to change your therapeutic management of alopecia areata. And you can see that there is a numerical scale as well, which goes from zero to 100, 100 being that, um, that totalis where you, there's, there's no hair growth and zero being, um, being better where you have uh, complete hair growth and then everything in between. As we can see from these uh, photos, but also in patient care, uh, we tend to see this uh, relapsing and remitting uh, type of patchy hair loss that can get worse over time due to a variety of conditions and, and also tends to improve um, at times as well. So it's, it's something where continuity of care uh, is again important and following patients over time uh, can make a difference. Um, and so the, uh, just to go over severity, uh, so mild is considered 20% of uh, scalp hair loss. That's kind of the magical number for me because um, when you have less than 20% of scalp involvement, you can still preferentially treat with, uh, with localized treatments, usually uh, with uh, corticosteroid injections uh, into the lesion itself. But more moderate to severe uh, cases, and you know, they start thinking about systemic, systemic therapy. Um, and those are the cases also, you have to judge uh, the person's uh, reaction in terms of, they may not be having a lot of symptoms, but again, is this something that's affecting their, their work domain, their school domain, their social domain? Um, that may move up uh, therapy in your mind. And, uh, you know, I don't see patients with as, you know, as many cases of alopecia areata, obviously, as Larry does, but maybe you want to talk about how um, AA can affect your patients. Yeah, the answer is the more the more significant the hair loss is, um, the more the impact is. Um, and um, this slide, you know, sort of representing, you know, when when you this was a, where they showed lay people pictures, what they think of the person, and people project onto their visualization of someone, <laughs> you know, all these stories, you know, that people saw that person is sick or is unattractive, uh, or different aspects of their personality that they assume based upon their presence or absence of hair. And I think patients in, know this. <laughs> and so part of the stigma of the hair loss is that their presentation to other people is different. And certainly the data shows that the health impact, the quality of life impact of more significant alopecia areata is really significant. And we see that in clinical practice. I, I saw a 14-year-old who had about 65% hair loss in about three months who came in and she's, you know, wearing a hood over her head and, you know, not making eye contact. And she wouldn't even want to take, she wanted her parents to leave the room when she was going to take her hood off for me to take a look. You know, so there's this whole withdrawal that's going on 
uh, as she's trying to deal with uh, um, to deal with this hair loss, and it goes along with the data set showing that there's really an incredible, you know, impact of the life of uh, affected individuals with with alopecia areata. I think too, it can't be understated the impact of loss of eyebrows and eyelashes. It seems like a relatively small body surface area, but it can have significant impact, especially on women uh, or and young adolescent females because of the stigma associated with that. Yeah, it's a great point. You're absolutely right. Yeah, so so much is internalized and, and can you know can be uh, affecting for for many years to come, unfortunately. Thank you both so much for this great discussion. When we come back, Dr. Eichenfeld and I will look at the pathophysiology of AD and AA, and in particular, we're going to talk about the JAK-STAT pathway. So stay tuned, and we'll be right back. So we're back, and we're going to talk a little bit about atopic dermatitis pathophysiology. Dr. Eichenfeld, do you want to take us through that? Sure, happy to do so. Uh, If you want to feed me the next slide, we can go through some of the the basics. So uh, atopic dermatitis is pretty... Um, uh, it's a complex uh, uh, set of uh, issues that relates to the, uh, both the um, dysfunction of the skin barrier, which manifests as, as dry skin and cirrhosis, and then the inflammation that's part of the disease, and add to that pruritus and the neurologic contribution of, of itch. Um, and we sort of have a sense of marrying the pathogenesis. So we know there are some people who intrinsically have dry skin, and that dry skin means the skin's more open, and because it's more open, it evaporates, and that makes it dry. And all of that contributes to having itchier skin, and also that antigens and allergens and or uh, um, uh, things that can irritate the skin can more easily do that. And then there's this whole inflammatory process with presenting of antigens, and then this sort of amplification process that involves a lot of Th2 immune function will participate in the manifestations of the clinical rash. And in our more severe patients, moderate severe patients, you can find those inflammatory markers in the blood, not just in the skin. And unfortunately, there's this cycle then that goes on because the dry skin influences the inflammation, which influences itch, and it all cycles back to make things worse. And at the intracellular level, first at the membrane level, there's a set of signals. So these cytokines are produced, and these cytokines will make it into the cell and stimulate through the JAK-STAT pathway um, um, further inflammation and mediation of the inflammation. So let's talk a little bit about alopecia areata pathophysiology. Would you mind walking us through that as well? Sure. Uh, this also is complex, but complex in a different way. Um, you know, it, it partially starts back in the 50s where if one has, a, has alopecia areata, you know, stressful events can go along with an episode of alopecia areata. So people said it was caused by stress, which is terrible because as I tell my patients in explaining a more nuanced discussion of this, I have plenty of stressed people in my office <laughs> not just patients <laughs> who might not have alopecia areata, <laughs> but, uh, but we do now understand that, you know, the, basically there's inflammation in the scalp in the areas where the hairs can't come out. And it's not a scarring process, so the hairs are there, but there's this beehive, and that's what it looks like. That picture under 1982 <laughs> is, shows this sort of inflammation around the hair follicle that's stopping the hair from coming up. 
And then there was really concerted effort to try to figure out what the genetic influences were. And this was really contributions of lots of families, affected and unaffected, who had their blood tested and biopsies done to sort of figure out the pathophysiology with an understanding now that there are certain genetic factors that mean that your normal protection, stopping the body from attacking your hairs, is diminished. And in that situation, probably from certain triggers, you then can get this inflammatory milieu which presents as alopecia areata. So now let's take a closer look with a brief video clip that will further illustrate the role of the JAK-STAT pathways in both atopic dermatitis and alopecia areata before we move on and discuss novel and emerging treatment. The Janus kinase, or JAK, protein family consists of JAK1, JAK2, JAK3, and tyrosine kinase 2, or TIC2. They interact with the intracellular portion of cytokine receptors and play an important role in signal transduction pathways for multiple pro-inflammatory cytokines. These pro-inflammatory cytokines contribute to the signs and symptoms of AD such as inflammation, itch, and barrier disruption. They include IL-4, IL-13, IL-22, IL-31, interferon gamma, and TSLP, but other cytokines are also involved. JAKs are intracellular enzymes that signal in pairs and are activated when cytokines and other growth factors bind to their extracellular receptors at the cell membrane. This initiates a downstream signaling cascade within the cell that affects gene expression, which is important for cellular activities, including those involved in immune cell function. Upon binding a pro-inflammatory cytokine, cytokine receptors dimerize, bringing JAK pairs into close proximity. The paired JAKs phosphorylate each other, resulting in their activation. JAK-mediated phosphorylation of the cytokine receptor creates a binding site for STATs. The activated JAKs then recruit and phosphorylate the STATs, which then dissociate and pair as dimers. Activated STAT dimers move into the nucleus, resulting in gene transcription that perpetuates the inflammatory response. JAK inhibitors, in particular abrocitinib, are thought to modulate the JAK-STAT signaling pathway at the point of JAK1, which is believed to reduce JAK phosphorylation and activation. In patients with alopecia areata, it is believed that cytotoxic T-cells are responsible for the vast majority of the initiation of the disease. Activated CD8-positive NKG2D-positive T-cells release interferon gamma that binds to its receptor on follicular epithelial cells, causing transition into catagen phase. This also causes follicular epithelial cells to promote the production of IL-15 through JAK1 and JAK2. IL-15 in turn binds to its receptor on CD8-positive T-cells and induces JAK1 and JAK3-mediated interferon gamma production and ultimately completes the feedback loop. There is ample evidence to support the use of JAK inhibitors in AA, and an increasing number of favorable clinical trials show their efficacy in hair regrowth. JAK inhibitors are already making their way into expert-authored therapy algorithms for the management of AA, despite the fact that they are not yet expressly approved for this condition. The agents furthest along in development are ritlacitinib, a JAK3 tech inhibitor, and baricitinib, a JAK1, JAK2 inhibitor. Both of these have demonstrated significant scalp, eyelash, and eyebrow hair regrowth in patients with AA, 
offering the hope to change the trajectory of the lives of people affected by this disease. So after that great video, we're going to switch gears a little bit and talk about what's on the horizon as far as treatments for both atopic dermatitis and alopecia areata. So Dr. Eichenfeld, we're going to start with you. Let's take, take a turn on a discussion and start with atopic dermatitis and specifically the role of JAK inhibitors in this disease. Uh, it's sort of hard to almost summarize it because there's, <laughs> there's so much that's happening in the field in a, in a short period of time. But we can start off with our goals for therapy. And our goals for therapy are to stop the inflammation in the skin, and that's going to improve our, our signs and symptoms of the disease, to prevent recurrence, prevent flares of the disease. And then what we'd really like is, is long-term disease control but with safety and sustainability of the response. And the whole um, approach to how we do our treatment is evolving. We have our algorithms and the algorithms, I keep having to rewrite the algorithms. This is an example of a type of algorithm where if you have milder disease, you're gonna use a topical therapy. You shouldn't need more than topical. You're gonna start off with really good skincare. You're gonna do trigger avoidance. If you have inflammation, you'll use your low potency topical medicines, usually topical steroids, but now you have some non-steroid alternatives that you can use. <laughs> and for more moderate disease, you may need stronger topical medicines to get it under control, or you may use these non-steroids that have, been, have come into the marketplace as well. And for patients with frequently recurrent or persistent disease, you'll start to go to a structured maintenance regimen, more like the asthma model of care, where you're not, you know, you don't want anyone wheezing ever. <laughs> you fix the wheeze and you figure out what you need so that they're not wheezing. And that's what we go for. And then there's some moderate patients where the topical approach isn't going to be enough. And then they'll morph over into the same sort of care that we have with severe patients, where we tend to use either phototherapy or systemic therapies, and the systemic therapies have totally changed and can, you know, and have really morphed because our systemic therapies were systemic immunomodulators, generally immunosuppressants, um, uh, one cytostatic agent with methotrexate, um, fair amount of side effect profile with them like with cyclosporin and uh, mycophenolate, and the newer agents are either biologics which are you know, synthetic molecules that might block cytokines or JAK inhibitors. And you know, in the last few months, we've had marked expansion of those medications to, you know, as an approach to atopic dermatitis. Um, and with the introduction of newer systemic therapies, you know, we've sort of got, we, we recognize now that um, we can take a more aggressive attitude to fix the consequences of disease as well as the physical signs and symptoms of the disease. And this is an algorithm that came from the International Eczema Council uh, uh, experts, which I think is a great simple algorithm, but what it's basically saying is you wanna make sure someone has atopic dermatitis when you're considering systemic therapy. You wanna make sure they've treated it appropriately with appropriate other medicines, that they've had adequate education so they understand their disease, to make sure they don't have other issues like secondary infections, contact allergy, and then if not, then consider systemic therapy. And, then, and now we really, it's shared decision-making to discuss what the, the different aspects are in terms of whether uh, 
patients will go on different types of topical medicines or for severe, moderate, severe AD that's not responsive, biologic agents with dupilumab being the first one uh, approved and one where we have extensive experience since uh, um, 2017 in adults and then subsequently down to age uh, six in pediatrics. And now we have expand, expansion of uh, a few new biologics uh, that are on the way uh, or approved. And then our JAK inhibitors, uh, uh, which, uh, several of which were just approved within the last several months and bring incredible efficacy. I'm happy to go on to discuss the details of JAK inhibitors. I have, we ha I put together a few slides um, on the actual clinical trials and it's more, I don't want to go through the details except to say this, so the JAK inhibitors are different. They're not injections, they're oral medications. And there are two that have been proved in the, uh, approved in the US uh, as of the time we're doing this. Uh, abracitinib, which is a new drug, has not been previously used for other diseases. And upadacitinib, um, uh, both are JAK1 inhibitors. Upadacitinib has been previously approved for uh, rheumatoid arthritis, so it has a, a different history. And uh, the, we seem to have a quite effective, incredible effectiveness with these oral agents, very rapid response, um, very profound effect on itch. So the, the kind of studies that are done in order to get the drug approved, you have to show that it works much better than placebo. This is the abracitinib um, um, data, and this is monotherapy, so it's called the, the Jade Mono studies. It shows at the lower dose, it's about 24 to 28%, at higher dose, 38 to 44% of patients who made it to clear or almost clear in their, you know, um, in their 12 weeks of therapy. We continue to treat beyond that. And that also there's a marked decrease. The PPNRS is just a measure of peak itch, showing marked decrease in itch with abracitinib and this newly approved drug. Uh, the next slide, so a, a question someone's going to have is, okay, so you said there's biologic agents and there are JAK inhibitors, how do they compare? So uh, this is a study where abracitinib is, was, uh, was being treated along with patients in the same study who were treated with uh, dupilumab. And you can see that depending upon the dose of abracitinib, you get very equivalent to dupilumab, though maybe quicker responses. Um, and at higher dose, you get um, even uh, hardier responses in terms of our standard outcome measures, which in these slides happen to be that clear, almost clear, the investigator global assessment, or what's called the easy 75. And that's really looking at what percentage of patients get at least 75% improved. So this is, to, uh, you know, this is uh, I think, showing utility of abracitinib. There have been uh, extensive studies in teens as well. So um, abracitinib was studied a 12 and older. It's approved 18 plus at the time at which uh, we're doing this, but it had very hardy responses and, and safety data that was very similar to the adults as well in this uh, adolescent cohort. Can an oral JAK inhibitor be useful for a patient who who's been on dupilumab before, and then either chooses to go to a different medicine or it didn't respond to it. And this is just a particular study that was done where um, they uh, essentially had the patients who were in that prior head-to-head -head study where they had patients who were on dupilumab or the abracitinib, and then they were taken off their drug and then put on abracitinib. And it showed that in patients who didn't respond to dupilumab, they did quite well with abracitinib uh, dosing. So just another set of patients who 
might benefit from this uh, medication. Now with any medicine, it's not just about how, how well it works, what about safety issues? And the JAK inhibitors um, have, I mentioned there are these different JAKs that are targeted by different medicines, that JAK1, JAK2, uh, JAK3, and Type 2 And the combinations of what's being sort of uh, addressed with each drug can have different, different um, um, trade-offs in terms of things that have to be observed. So with the, the, the oral JAK inhibitors with abracitinib, there's a recommendation to check blood work at the initiation of the, of the drug and a month later and probably every few months after that. Um, and then there's you know, there, um, um, data to follow a little bit of an increased risk in herpes uh, zoster uh, or herpes simplex uh, with these as well. And then one of the issues that have been raised with JAK inhibitors um, based on not drugs for atopic dermatitis, but with other oral JAK inhibitors, are some major issues, which include blood clots, venous thromboembolism, major cardiac events, question about malignancies with these drugs. So it's something that you'll see whenever we discuss these new JAK inhibitors for atopic dermatitis or even for alopecia areata as people assess the information about safety over time. The next slide, just to let you know that we have similar data sets for um, 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 baricitinib, a drug that's not yet approved in the United States for atopic dermatitis, but had pretty good uh, efficacy uh, short-term um, as well as long-term. And I probably wouldn't go beyond that in discussions because it's probably not going forward for atopic dermatitis. There's probably more chance it might be approved for alopecia areata, but we'll, <laughs> we'll save that for the, uh, uh, for the next set of slides. Um, and beyond, uh, uh, and we can go beyond the safety just to mention uh, uh, that, uh, go to the uh, Yepatacitinib, two slides down. And Yepatacitinib is another JAK1 inhibitor that um, has been approved from ages 12 plus for atopic dermatitis. Again, it's an oral JAK inhibitor, predominantly JAK1. This shows profound percentage of patients that had 75% improvement uh, with it and or made it to clear, almost clear. That's what those purple and blue bars Two different doses that were approved, recommendation that a lower dose be started initially because of concerns of more side effects with the higher dose, but very strong efficacy in these trials in adolescents and adults. They also had a head-to-head -head with dupilumab. Unfortunately, the head-to-head -head was done with the higher dose, and the higher dose is recommended by the FDA that you don't start with, but at the higher dose, the punchline is that upadacitinib is quicker than dupilumab in terms of its impact on many of the outcome measures, but it's also one that's not recommended as the initial. Um, and the next slide actually discusses some of the hepatocytinib um, uh, um, uh, safety data. If we can go to the next slide. And this slide is looking at the combined safety analysis of hepatocytinib. And um, you can see there's some nasopharyngitis, a CPK elevation, um, um, uh, but the major adverse events, the sort of safety warnings with hepatocytinib uh, are, are the same ones that I mentioned with abracitinib, with, uh, uh, um, and we'll, we'll see the relative safety over time uh, with this product as well. But I wanted to go on and shift over because we also have uh, an incredible new set of, uh, of uh, agents for alopecia areata, but I want to put them into perspective with what 
we've used um, uh, generally in clinical practice. But, but Chuck, before I go back into, into my um, uh, discussion on more uh, new stuff, in your clinical practice in primary care for uh, alopecia areata, do you do intralesional injection or topical steroids, or do you generally refer that out? We do refer it out, um, and I think there's a few different pressures here, uh, one of which is just um, I think that it's something that your practice, is, your staff, your team is very used to giving intralesional corticosteroids, and so it's, it's ready, it's, it's good to go, patients know what to expect, you know what to expect. When we, ever tr when we try to do those procedures in the middle of a busy clinical practice, where we're spending about 15 minutes uh, per patient, it's like a crazy fire drill and everybody's running around, and, and by the time time you get it set up, like two hours may have passed and the patients like left the building. So I think from an efficiency standpoint, we, we do have a procedure clinic where we can do uh, interlesional corticosteroids. And so, but that doesn't, we don't have the space there for everybody because we're also doing shoulder injections and, you know, minor surgery on, you know, potentially skin lesions and doing biopsies and things like that. So it's just, I think it's getting squeezed out unfortunately, frankly, from primary care practice, because it is very nice to be able to do that one-stop shop for diagnosis and treatment. Um, but I do, I do find that the interlesional corticosteroids generally can be effective for folks with, uh, with fairly limited uh, disease, and, and therefore they can start feeling better faster. So um, um, yeah, in pediatrics, often we'll use strong topical corticosteroids in place of injection corticosteroids, again, for sort of that you know, 20% uh, or 30% less uh, alopecia areata. People should be aware that topical minoxidil has gone into vogue, I think partially influenced by its ease of acquisition now because a lot of the big uh, warehouse stores like Costco and stuff, where it used to be 120 to $160 a month, you can get a six month of supply for 20 or $40. <laughs> and it, it is an adjuvant therapy. And I think most, you know, it's rare that patients end up getting systemic corticosteroids, cyclosporin, or methotrexate. We talk about systemic therapy, but it hasn't been used a lot. Um, and psychological import is, uh, support is important in alopecia areata. But, you know, this is an area that, that's morphing now. We, we never had very detailed studies on, on um, systemic agents for atopic dermatitis. But um, you realize that when you start to get, you know, more than 20% uh, involvement, the practicality of doing intralesional steroids is much harder. And there have been these associations of, of clinical responses with JAK inhibitors that have really fueled the field. So this was a patient who had plaque psoriasis and um, alopecia universalis. And it was decided by uh, the doctors up at, up at Yale that hey, maybe they'd use oral tofacitinib, which is a, a, you know, a, a JAK inhibitor that could treat both the psoriasis and the alopecia areata. And they both fixed the psoriasis and had full hair regrowth. And so it's the observations like this that have then uh, subsequently uh, moved into um, um, off-label uses of JAK inhibitors for alopecia areata. Uh, attempts to then see if people could put could combine, um, uh, um, um, utilize these agents other than orally and to compound them to use topically. The punchline is it didn't work. <laughs> but with oral use off-label, there were situations like this. These are four different patients, and you can see at least great results from these patients who are 
you know, uh, presented uh, in the papers. And then, uh, you know, and so you can get incredible regrowth with the uh, oral JAK inhibitors. None approved right now, but now they've gone into clinical study. So there's been these set of randomized controlled trials, uh, uh, which included two topical products, ruxolitinib and delgacitinib, punchline, Topicals don't seem to work unless someone can figure out a different way to get them to penetrate into the scalp. The studies have been failures. And then four different products, baricitinib, a JAK-1-2, deroxylitinib, another JAK-1-2, ritalcitinib, a JAK-3, TEC, and beprotocitinib, JAK-1-type-2, that have been studied for alopecia areata with some really good results. Baricitinib, that's the drug I said not going to go for, probably for atopic dermatitis in the U.S., has some very nice results. You see about 40% of patients, 35, 40% of patients had a SALT score of 20, meaning that they were down to 20% or less of hair loss uh, uh, with patients who saw it with a very profound hair loss, with regrowth of eyebrows and eyelashes in about 50% of individuals, and pretty good safety events without thromboembolism, tuberculosis, or opportunistic infections being seen. Deroxylitinib, even higher bars of clinical response. And I'm just going to talk, you know, ritalcitinib, also phase three data showing very nice uh, improvement, a high percentage of individuals getting down to that, uh, to mostly regrowth of most of their scalp with, um, similarly high improvement levels in uh, eyebrow and eyelash, and safety results that seemed pretty decent as well. And Bepracitinib, another product showing a marked improvement, you know, overall lesional scalp percentage reduction at 12 to 24 weeks. And, and I think no one should learn this data. <laughs> it's just to get a sense of these incredible changes that might be coming. And then the issue is going to be, what's the safety and extended use? And then what kind of discussions we have with our patients to make sure that we're uh, comfortable in terms of uh, making uh, good decisions for uh, patients or families in the case of uh, kids potentially in terms of when to use these agents. And also the question of what's the persistence of response? Is it going to be a one-year therapy and then they'll be fine? Or is it that they're going to need continuous therapy? And then what's the, uh, um, um, are there going to be safety trade-offs with that? But in the space of alopecia areata, we've never really had controlled studies done before, <laughs> uh, nor uh, pharmaceutical companies who, who listened to us say how much clinical need there was. And we're in this new age where I think there's going to be a lot more possibilities for our patients. Dr. Eichenfeld, that was absolutely fantastic. And I, going back to those pictures with response, it also appears that the, these new agents that focused on alopecia areata seem to work in all different skin types and in disease severity. Would you agree? Yes, yes. But of course, when I show you the pictures of the complete regrowth, that may not be everyone. You have to look at the data sets on who made it, what percentage of patients made it. But I agree, it was a diverse patients who were in those studies. Wonderful. Thank you so much. That was another great discussion. It's clearly an exciting time to be involved in the management of both um, atopic dermatitis and alopecia areata. So when we come back for the final segment, we will discuss the power of team-based holistic care for caring for these patients with AD and AA. We'll be right back. 
So let's move on now to talk about the power of team-based and holistic care in caring for our AD and alopecia areata patients. In the last segment, we looked at some of the shared experiences we had with treating patients, looking at pathophysiology and the emergent uh, treatment options. So let's talk a little bit more about the wider care team roles in caring for these patients. So let's start with you, Dr. Vega. How would you describe your respective roles in providing team-based care of these patients? Yeah, I, I think that it's a really exciting time for, uh, for patients. Uh, with what we've already established can be some very disabling uh, conditions, some very uh, symptomatic uh, conditions, um, alopecia areata and atopic dermatitis. And, and I would just say a few things from, from the primary care perspective is we want to keep that, uh, that referral um, at the right time. So um, for atopic dermatitis in particular, I'm thinking, do we really have the kind of skin hygiene? Have we tried you know, one, two, three steps in terms of topical therapies, in terms of controlling the patient's atopic dermatitis? Um, and are this, and those therapies really being used? Because we see pretty wide, widely variable levels of adherence. And like Larry mentioned, look for secondary infections, look for uh, potential allergies that could be uh, affecting the skin lesions as well. And then once you've done that work, I think that's when you send, uh, send the patient forward to your friendly local dermatologist enumerating, we failed X, Y, and Z. So they can start and you know, they're working to the best of their abilities offering these systemic therapies, which, which are new and, and very exciting and probably not going to be where they get started in primary care. It's going to be in the dermatologist's office. And then ongoing, as they move through those, those stages of care, a uh, couple things that I would um, think would be a strong role for our team is, uh, one, maintain that ground game. So of course, the patient should be continuing with their skin hygiene. Uh, they should be continuing on, on topical therapy many times for flares, for example. Uh, and then lastly, um, I think about the, the chance for those rare complications with serious complications, serious infections, the potential for thrombosis. Um, you know, I, I don't know exactly how common those, those uh, scenarios are for a major adverse cardiovascular event, for example. But as we especially treat adults with alopecia areata, and there are older adults, middle-aged adults, who have risk factors, maybe they had a prior thrombotic event, that's another thing we really need to communicate because some patients, one, may not be candidates for, um, you know, for a, a, say, a JAK inhibitor. Um, two, we'll really need some close monitoring for those potential, albeit rare, serious side effects. And that's something primary care can have a strong role in as well. Uh, just one comment that some, sometimes, depending on your region, it may be um, that you refer out to an allergist and not uh, a dermatologist. You know, we, we've taken the team-based care for specialized atopic dermatitis and other steps. We have a multidisciplinary atopic derm program where patients are seen by the allergist and dermatologist and a clinical pharmacist in the clinic at the same time. Um, it's not something we can will everyone to have because obviously it it's, it's, takes a lot of time and energy and expense. It's a great model. I've learned so much about how you know, holistic care matters, uh, even if allergies might not be triggering the eczema, to help care for the allergies is really important to the patient. <laughs> um, and, um, and I do think that, uh, to point it out, the primary care provider is, is crucial and it's gonna be increasingly crucial as we, as we come on to having systemic therapy and we need to do the weigh in balance of what's the right therapy for individuals.
And I will also point out that especially in our adolescents or younger patients, they may not see the need to see primary care fairly often because they're fairly healthy. So when they do see a dermatology specialist um, and we do talk about perhaps you know, age-appropriate vaccinations or whatnot, it's an opportunity for us in the specialty area to really have them reconnect with their primary care providers and engage in, uh, you know, the management of their whole health and not just their skin issues. So, um, wonderful. Uh, another question I have for both of you, do you have any tactics for really promoting that optimal communication and coordinating care between the different team members and specialties? I want to work with Larry's group. So um, that, you know, if you're all in the same place at the same time, I can't think of more, more optimal than that. And we, we, I know we're really busy. I'm really busy. But boy, you can cut through so much just with a, uh, a quick phone call or text or something like that. And it can really clarify things. And at times can be life-saving for a patient in terms of keeping uh, them safe because we know that medical errors can really be costly in so many ways. Um, that said, usually it's just sharing information. And I, I always like try to make your notes um, you know, very directed, particularly at the end, as to why you know what you're doing and why, and that way we stay on the same page. But, but I, I will occasionally, if I see something, it's like, whoa, this is way off from the way I thought things were. I mean, it's kind of one of those full stop moments that this could be potentially dangerous for a patient, or it's not the way I, I see things, and I need to understand it better. Yeah, I, I will call the office, and we can we might connect at like 8 p.m. that night. But I feel very satisfied that yeah, you know, and, and oftentimes it is completely worth it to have that brief conversation because, uh, because that way we, uh, we can move forward together on the patient. And I felt like we have a better relationship too. And I, I, so that's something that I would just espouse. Yeah. And on the receiving end, I'd say it's crucial, you know, the say to, to, to a primary care colleague um, uh, or an allergist who's looking to get, get our help. It's, you know, just, you know, whatever the method of communication, whether it be email, EMR or phone call, you know, I think um, some of my docs know that they'll, they'll, they can get to me and say, I'm really worried about this one. I can get this patient in right away. And, you know, we're so busy, it's like, but it can't say no. If, <laughs> uh, so, you know, the communication is important um, 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 to really make sure patients get what they need. Dr. Eichenfeld, could you also just talk a little bit about some strategies you may have regarding patient education, specifically communicating realistic expectations for treatment, managing adverse events, and promoting adherence? So it's, it's both easier and harder with, with our you know, big changes that are happening in the fields for both atopic dermatitis and alopecia areata. I'd say it's, uh, it's uh, harder because there's still a lot of communication an education to do. Uh, patients often come in with both diseases, not really understanding the disease. You know, why is it that, that I have it or my kid has it and someone else doesn't? And they want the answer and they want to be cured from their disease. And in, in both diseases, we can't necessarily cure it, but we can control it in a way to minimize the impact on life. And so we have our messaging. Uh, we spend time putting together materials, you know, sort of cartoonish uh, PDF uh, versions of PowerPoint. We have specialized clinic, we put them online. We have different ways of trying to, to work with patients, but most of the education goes on in the, in the clinic. And I have to say many times I say to, on a first visit for either of those diseases, I say, I wish we had an hour and 10 minutes and we don't, but we'll have a few visits and we'll fill in your, you know, the questions and answers as we go. 
Um, but what, as a nurse practitioner, what, what, you know, tell us how, how, what are your feelings on this? Yeah, I think it's really important, uh, the comments that you made. I think setting expectations is really key. But above that, to your point, really establishing that you're you're um, excited that they're here and that you're going to become their partner. This is a long-term relationship with them. Um, I really start by asking them, you know, about their journey with this condition. Just being able to take a few minutes to listen, which I know is really precious time in primary care as well as in, in dermatology. It's hard to find the time. But really being able to um, establish a trusting relationship with patients really goes such a long way with um, not only having them trust you as a provider that you have their best interest at heart, but also really has been shown to help with adherence of the medications or therapies that we prescribe for them and also their ability to follow up. So I think nurse practitioners and PAs really do play an important role in managing some of these chronic conditions, but it really does take a village, and I think the importance of including our primary care partners, our dermatologists, our other specialists, our mental health providers as well, is really critical. Um, Dr. Vega, do you have any pearls about communication tips with your patients? No, I, I like to have that, as you said, that really the patients uh, start to define their goals, and that will put me um, in the mindset of, of where they are at and, and whether um, hopefully, I actually find it's usually quite realistic and maybe even a little bit more limited than, than what I would hope for them. And so, uh, but again, it does start to build that bridge of trust. So starting with the patient's perspective is always a good idea. Wonderful. I think that's really key. So um, Dr. Eichenfeld, I wonder if you could take a few of these summary or key points um, uh, related to atopic dermatitis. Yeah, happy to do, do so. So, I mean, the past 50 years had been relatively quiet for atopic dermatitis, but we're in this, you know, incredibly changing mode of an evolution and revolution in therapy. I think biologics revolutionized atopic dermatitis, helped us to understand it um, and, um, um, and, and really see new, new avenues for systemic therapy. Um, we've learned more about the impact of atopic dermatitis, quality of life impact, and comorbidities as well. Like, um, and we've also, um, uh, we're learning how oral agents like oral JAK inhibitors can bring a profound and rapid uh, benefit to our patients as well. And Dr. Vega, any uh, thoughts too about some summary points from the primary care perspective? Well, you know, I, I do work with patients who are severely affected in terms of their mental health and, and as I said, have, have ongoing mental health issues that really began after they developed uh, these dermatologic diagnoses. And so, and so it, it does, it, it, that holistic uh, viewpoint makes, makes me, you know, even more excited about new treatment options that can treat particularly the more severe cases that we see in our practice and of course the ones who are mo more affected in terms of quality of life and a mental well-being. Thank you so much for that. Dr. Eichenfeld and Dr. Vega, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to walk us through very quickly um, some of the pathogenesis, the clinical features, and the up-and-coming treatments for atopic dermatitis and alopecia areata. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you, Lakshi. Yeah, thank you very much. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening.
Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash REA860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Pfizer.